0: Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway Timberliving.ie Good morning You're
1: very welcome to the show uh, We'll have a look at the headlines first I think it seems for as long as any of us can remember When you take away all the noise out of these um, Kind of uh, upsurges over the health service that at the core of it can often be this uh, tension or battle of wills between the Ministry for Health or the Minister of the Time and the consultants. So I think we see that a bit maybe on the front of the Business Post today where uh, we're told that Donnelly raised concerns with HSE in summer about hospital overcrowding, so not his fault. Uh, It says here, uh, specifically, he queried the number of consultants working at weekends as his department warned that significant surges in hospitals were likely. They also have a story below the fold there in the business post that the LDA is paying more to build affordable houses than its EU neighbours. There's there's a bigger story inside. And the kind of bigger story on it is that four years on, the LDA has built uh, nothing, and it'll be six years before it builds anything. Remember, it was set up with much fanfare for it to build uh, houses on state land. But it's um health again on the Sunday Independent. Uh, they have a poll. And uh, in that poll, uh, three quarters of the public said they would only attend a hospital emergency department if they thought their life depended on it. And the number of people highlighting health care as their main concern increased from 24% in December to 58% in this poll. So I think it just shows that people's concerns are driven by whatever uh, the media is, uh, is, is going on in in the discourse at the time, maybe, you know. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday, a week of A&E chaos, quotes, kills 50 patients. So it, wh- that's, that's uh, it's a notional idea. So Stephen Black is a, is a data scientist from Belfast. But you know this uh, statistic that's been much quoted of that for every 72 people who spend 8 to 12 hours in a, Waiting in an ED, one will die. So I think they've crunched the numbers to figure out that um, that would mean, on average, that 50 patients died this week because of that. Uh, the situation here. The Sunday Times have gone with Garda, drafted overseas to help catch Kinnahans, detectives sent to UAE and Thailand and move on cartel. They also have on their front page what is a really, really. Um, powerful story by Neil Francis. The headline they have there is From Meeting the Pope to Dead in a Heroine Squad via Black Rock. And it, there's a long piece inside Neil Francis talking about his own time in Black Rock and, uh, and guys he knew there. Uh, the Sunday World has a story about uh, Aaron Brady, the killer of Garda, Adrian Donahue. He got in a fight in prison over Christmas. And The Sun has a story about the murder of young Kevin Sheehy. And the Murr... Uh, Meskel goes Maximus Normal people star Lined up for lead role In Gladiator movie sequel And I suppose you'd say Well done to Paul Meskel But not right now dear We have other things To talk about Um, Our panel today Alison O'Connor Is political commentator With the Irish Examiner Anthony Staines Is professor of Public health systems At DCU Kate O'Connell is a pharmacist and former Fine Gael TD and Sinead O'Sullivan is a business economist formerly of the Harvard Business School Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Brendan. Brendan. Uh, And um, we're we're going to be joined now for uh, a little while as well by Dr. Emily O'Connor, consultant in emergency medicine. Good morning, Emily. Morning. Uh, Emily, you're very upset, are you?
2: Yes. Um, I, I think that over, I think not only have patients, but staff have been let down enormously by having to go through this Christmas, New Year period in emergency departments Yes, uh, yet again. I, I suppose that my overwhelming feeling is anger, and that anger makes me emotional on the subject. Um, I wasn't going to say, you know, do any media on the subject until I heard Two very brave, honest nurses say on one of um, the shows during the week that they are broken, and they are done. And that just is so true. What
1: is that the how conditions you feel?
2: we're making, yes. The conditions that we're asking staff to work in, in emergency departments at the moment, means that people are being broken, and that we are really feeling that we are done. Um so yes, to talk about why to talk about the damage being done to people being expected to work in these circumstances. What is what is your uh, work system.
1: schedule? Sorry, Emily, what's your work schedule right now?
2: So we work um we work um uh, days uh we do we work one long day a week, which would be uh twelve hour, the rest of the days are about ten hour, and then we do our own call on top of that, and then we do um um, weekends. I suppose it's not even the amount you're doing. Yeah. I'm probably doing less than I was. It's I, not being able to meet the eye of the paramedics with the ambulances that you're lining up in your corridors, and you can't, you can't offload. It's passing the patients in the corridor, uh, hour after hour after hour, who haven't been haven't been seen. It's expecting the triage nurse to go out to a waiting room again when there's 40 patients waiting to be triaged and a four-hour wait to be triaged. It is simply inhumane to ask people to do this again and again and again and it just makes me... and then when the system opens up on the 4th of January or, or whatever and people try and tell you, "Oh, sure, could have be been worse. Could be, oh, we've done worse before. Sure, it'd be all right." It's not okay, and I think we have to just start accepting that this is not okay in any in any in any way.
1: Do you feel? Um, you, do you because, feel you and your colleagues are being blamed for this?
2: Oh, um, I'm, I'm sure in part way. Yeah, I feel there's a fair bit of gaslighting going on to get us to shut up. What do you mean? Um, um, I, I think whenever someone like me complains that that something has failed, you'll be made feel that it was your fault. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Um, so I, I think there's a fair bit of that going on. Um, I think is is like it possible that, though
1: that there's an element of of truth that maybe both things are true? That consultants yes. are working very hard. Why are only eight percent of people discharged at the weekend? Why are ninety-two percent of people discharged Monday to Friday? So, so it be, like if you if it was spread out over the week, that should be thirty percent being discharged at the weekend.
2: So you're you're absolutely right. There was a huge variation in practice between consultants between, um, between specialties enormous ones. And um, the variation between weekend and weekday is not simply down to there being less consultants at weekend. It's because we've less. Physios, home care packages, home teams, everything like that. At, at weekends, less diagnostics. So there's, uh, there's, so many things. There isn't a thing you can mention, Brendan, that shouldn't be actioned. So, so the minister is better. not
1: the minister is not wrong in looking he's for he's a seven wrong. over seven. No,
2: absolutely not. Absolutely not looking for seven over seven. But staff are already at breaking points. And the prospect of all of us would love to work in a system that functioned, but having come through some horrendous shifts where I work between Christmas and New Year, you have to say how broken do you have to be um, before you stop doing it. It's breaking staff, yeah it's breaking young nurses, breaking senior doctors. People are leaving in their droves. So I I suppose my point was we need to acknowledge where we are now. And um, I'm not here to talk about solutions. I'm just here to say there's a whole other group of victims in this, which are burnt out, broken staff.
1: Okay. Uh, Emily, would you stay with us for a little while while we discuss the various aspects of this? Okay, thanks. Uh, Alison O'Connor, what do you make of that?
3: God, I mean, you can hear it in, in Emily's voice and uh, it's yet it's no surprise when you consider what Emily and, and her colleagues have been through in the last couple of years with COVID uh, and what and what they face now. And I think that she's it's very good of her for want of another way to say, it, to acknowledge that um, Stephen Donnelly was not incorrect in what he said. Uh, like the fact is that the current consultant contract is basically Monday to Friday, um, but that doesn't mean as and there Emily seems has outlined to be a
1: certain reluctance as well. Sorry yeah. to to put in, yeah. but just on that. There seems to be a certain reluctance by some consultants as well to take up a contract that will be 37 hours and that would require them to work, sometimes work yeah. 8 a.m. to 10 yeah. p.m. And I think a lot of people are scratching their heads thinking, well, that sounds
3: OK. But yet they're saying they're worked off. Their well, future. I mean, but, I suppose on one level, right, you cannot. anyway, there are consultants all over the country working incredibly hard right. and who have been through this 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 really acute period over the last couple of years. But the bottom line is that they there is an awful lot of autonomy. They quite rightly, they have clinical independence deciding, you know, whether somebody should be discharged or not. But nobody really is keeping an eye on, you know, are are they working at weekends? You know, how much are they working? And that's the bit that they don't want to give up. Now, that's kind of human nature. But the reality, really, you, you look through the papers this morning, you see, uh, that that uh, our health service is in the most appalling state. Um, as Emily says, it's not just one thing. That would fix a couple of things. It would help the system. But as she said, there's a whole lot of other things. Physios, all these other services. That, I mean, it's interesting to draw together this morning's coverage, right? I mean, you look at the 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 survey in the the opinion poll in the Sunday Independent where it says that uh, Jodie Corkin's piece inside that almost three quarters of people say they would only attend an emergency department. If their life depended on it. I mean, there's a joke in there somewhere if it wasn't so serious. I mean, that is extraordinary. So less than a quarter of us really would go yeah, like if that we were referred it, by that, a GP. That is,
1: that is probably natural after the week we've seen where we saw kind no, of Brenton, alarming footage coming out of be and everything I think people,
3: else. People have been thinking that for, for an incredibly long time. I'm, I'm from Bantry in West Cork, right? And there's a, a lovely, lovely is the wrong word, it's a very good hospital in Bantry. Small hospital does really good work. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, I can tell yeah. you now that if, uh, and I know this with, with elderly relatives and that, people live in fear of the idea that something will happen, the ambulance will be called, and that the the very hardworking ambulance people will say, actually, we have to bring you to University Hospital Cork. Mm. Um, and that's no, I mean, there's some wonderful people who work there. But I mean, the idea that people are in active fear of attending um, their local. Uh, hospital is a quite extraordinary thing, yeah. and yet we do. do you know factor what? It I in. have
1: a personal experience yeah. of uh, of of University Hospital Cork yeah. before Christmas. It wasn't as busy. I spent a few yeah. days in 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 the A and E there, yeah. and I have to say that. There is another side to this here which I think it's important we don't yeah. forget which is that the, the, the Emily's and the consultants yeah. the nurses everybody exactly. is providing incredible care yeah. under these circumstances. I think to, to, to I just mean, kind of go any, to the course of yeah. people who are, are afraid to go to an ED yeah. and that's okay. There is another side to it that there is great care being provided extraordinary kindness and humanity take and, any, and all any, of that. You cannot
3: take any one part of this. It's, it's it is, to say it's multifactorial you know But also, just and I'll finish on this point, the political will is not there to solve this problem. We heard an awful lot of sounding off this week. You saw that story in the front of the business post where it said the minister was writing. I mean, my dog could have been writing letters during the summer <laughs> about what was going to happen in the hospital. We all, you know, it's yeah. here we go well, again. I know, But, it, but it, you consider it, it, yes, that in... Yes, but
1: it seems that they, no, no dog in the yeah. HSE, apart from possibly Waterford, thought to prepare for this. Yeah, well,
3: I mean, that I, one of the solutions, I think, would be that that general manager in Waterford, I think, is Grace Ratholizer, might yeah. be cloned. I mean, she's doing the most... <laughs> she's, she's being... Successful. You think, look at it this way. There are three former ministers for health in the cabinet and one actual one. One is currently Taoiseach. One is a former Taoiseach. The current Taoiseach very laudably has said he's going to bring in, a, you know, the child child poverty is going to be brought into the Department of the Taoiseach. The last Taoiseach set up the shared island unit. Very laudable, very commendable. How come none of them has ever said Health is going to be the thing that I'm bringing front and centre okay. here and the entire cabinet is going to work on this. It's five years since launch. Because,
1: because in two weeks time, people will be demanding that housing be the emergency mm. and that is the thing. That's probably part yeah, of Yeah, but the that's reason. too Kate, much What you're, about you You're, right? at, you're at a front line, the, the front line of the front line in a way, for, uh, the kind of first responder in the community. What are your observations?
0: Well, I mean, I, I actually am kind of embarrassed listening to Dr. Emily O'Connor because she's such a, capable um, member of our health service. And I would completely agree with that, um, you know, staff are broken. You have to protect your staff. Um, this is three years in we've been asked to keep going. And we are seeing it amongst our own staff. We have a big staff that we have staff illness emerging, time mm. off happening. And it's not laziness, it's real illness. People are falling sick due to the constant pressures. And no matter what reports we do or plans that we do, we do need consultants and we do need nurses and we need pharmacists and we need care assistants and we need all those people working together. And it is soul destroying if you are doing a 12 or 12 and a half hour day where anything can land in on your door, be it the community pharmacy or be it A&E. Mm-hmm. And then you have somebody in power telling you that you're not working hard enough. And yes, she's right. People are broken and um, people are angry and it's not just about consultants working the weekend. It's a whole multidisciplinary team that's needed, but also different specialities obviously have different pathways that are required. So, yes, I do agree that the contract has to be changed to encompass the weekends because illness doesn't stop at the weekends. But I think it is deeply unfair to paste it that consultants aren't doing enough and it's their fault because I have yet to meet a lazy consultant yeah. who only turns up 37 yeah. and a half. And I've yet to meet a nurse that hangs up her hat at, at, yeah. at closing time yeah. and walks out the door. And, and We're all doing more. And I think in fairness, we more. should
1: say that the, the likes of the Minister for Finance have also questioned mm. hospital management and all of this as well. It's not all being put on on the staff. But it's Anthony, going on three years. No, you're you're a professor of public health systems. Uh, There's a systemic... Uh, the, the system isn't fit for purposes. The system need to be redesigned.
4: This needs to be rethought about. It. I mean you put your finger on it very nicely. If you're in West Cork, you may be sick enough you require the full services of an ED. It means critically seriously ill. But there's no route for you to go to Bantry. The ambulance will take you to UHC. Yeah, because well, it depends that's, on what yeah. you, you That's what well, well, they do.
3: It depends on, on what you're presenting with. Yeah. Some, uh, sometimes you're particular. Uh, I think
1: yeah. pretty much in Cork, it seems to be the ambulance will only take you to see UHC. No, I know uh, this for uh, a like fact in, from yeah, personal experience yeah. Yeah. that depending do, on uh, what you're presenting with, Cork you could City be taken. but you uh, might uh, like to get it, to the bonds or different places. You can't. You've got to have something.
4: You've got to have something in Bantry that's fit for purpose and open all the time. And we have these rows about emergency departments. So there's a row about the emergency department in Navin. Yeah. The truth is there is no emergency department in Navin. There hasn't been an emergency department in Navin in living memory. There is a, a room with the words emergency department written outside it. But it doesn't provide modern ED care because modern ED care is intended to snatch you back from the edges of death. And that's what Emily and people like her colleagues do. They take people who would otherwise die and fix them.
1: Okay. so can I ask you a question on that then? It would seem to me that most of the people who are in an ED are not in that situation. Mm. Okay, for example, I was reading this book about reframing a problem. Reframing Mm. problems can be a very effective way of seeing different solutions. Do we have an ED problem here? And Emily, you might you might speak to this as well. Or do we have an old people problem? Because it struck me Mm. down in CUH. What you had in there was a lot of old people with infections, a lot of them distressed and delirious, as old people yep. can get when they have infections. They did not need to be in an ED. They should have been in a geriatric clinic somewhere, surely. They, they need care and
4: they need urgent. They need access to urgent care. But they don't necessarily need access to an emergency department care. And a lot of success in the say in the US and the UK has been in streaming, in identifying people who can receive immediate care. Because they do need immediate care in different places and different settings. And some of those settings are in the one building. So Luke's and Kilkenny have an example where they stream people coming in the door to a number of different services. Yeah. So you have medical assessment units, trauma units, a mental health unit, a geriatric unit specialising. In those disciplines, and
1: if you find and people are triaged immediately yeah. for those, and, sent and off, if you so find someone's in the wrong the, box, the, yeah, you,
4: you put them back in the right box. Okay, and
1: it's a little bit like what we heard about on the news there yeah. what they're trialling with talking to the ambulance yeah. people and yeah. saying, well, maybe actually yeah. bring that yeah. person. So, <coughs> excuse me, Emily.
4: Brendan,
2: all do we have
1: an old people problem? Is that a big part of this?
2: Um, we have a demographics problem. We, I would say, in five years' time, though be some big public health research papers who have described the need for the huge rise in the need for acute health care in mm-hmm. this, you know, end of COVID phase. Um, and, and, and a lot of, and part of that is that a lot of older people have become a lot less frail, a lot more frail during COVID. And yes, are, are needing to come into hospital and emergency department. Every single thing that was mentioned there could happen, should happen, but doesn't happen or happens episodically or happens sometimes. There's an awful lot of small, bespoke quality healthcare projects going on. There is nothing for someone like me who stands in my ED with a a 16-hour wait to see a doctor,
1: a Mm. four-hour
2: wait to see a triage nurse, Mm. no ICU beds, 20... When I stand there... Okay, well, Emily, what percentage of those
1: people need to be... What percentage well, of those people well, need to be at an ED?
2: That is not the point. That's the type of question that I get asked to defer, or no offence, Brendan, to actually shut people like me up.
1: Oh, no, it I'm not sure. Tra- not I don't, they I'm not are at theirs. all. Not at all. I'm yes, trying to think but, of this systemic issue here, and we are being told that they, logically enough, the reason that uh, the EDs are overcrowded is because people shouldn't come to EDs, is what they were there basically definitely told. Some
2: so are There are definitely patients who come who could be cared for in in a more accessible GP primary care service. Once they're there, um, I need Mm. um, staff, space and agreed pathways. And Mm. there seems to be an inability of the, the system is so overstretched all the time that there is no ability to escalate when, let's say, um, I've uh, uh, one doctor, one nurse off sick, and a f- which we, we we should always put these things. We should always assume we're going to have some sick staff and overstaff to try and compensate for that, so that we don't end up with a four-hour wait for triage, a mm. sixteen-hour wait to see a doctor, no ICU beds. It, you know, we we are we don't put in the planning. To ensure we don't fail. Yeah, but well, I trans- suppose,
1: suppose they can't get the staff is is part yes. of it, isn't it? Um yes. Sinead O'Sullivan, economist, you've been listening to all this very thoughtfully.
5: Um yeah, so we absolutely have a demographics issue. If you step back from the problem, you know and, and for people like Emily it's impossible. She can't step back from the problem. Mm-hmm. she she's on the front line dealing with this all every day. And neither should she step back. She should not be using her time to think about what are What are the problems that Ireland's demographics going to do for for the health service in the next five to ten years, but unfortunately she does have to think about it because other people in the government aren't. We have three things happening right now. One is that we have a massively aging population in Ireland that nobody seems to be talking about, although it is reflected um, along many themes in the papers today, and, and we might discuss them later mm. in various different aspects. We have the fact that we are still living through a global pandemic and the effects of that are unlikely to go away for at least another decade. Mm -hmm. And we're in the worst part of the year. It's winter and people get sick. And so we're kind of like, oh, no, everyone's sick. What are we going to do about it? Contracts. And this is a really complex problem that people need to be thinking about in, in many, many different ways in many, many different departments. And so Stephen Donnelly writing some emails saying, you know, we need more people. In fairness to Stephen, what is he supposed to do about this? You need a whole redesign, not a few more people working a few more hours. Mm. You need to redesign the entire system to reflect Mm. the fact that, you know, maybe it's not consult. I mean, it absolutely is consultants that we need. But who's thinking about the porters? Who's thinking about the food and the catering? Who's thinking about, you know, how do you get wheelchair access to move a patient between A and B on a Mm. Sunday evening? This is just such a hugely complex issue that has to do with macro, macro issues that I don't feel like we're discussing at all as, as, as you know, as an economy. And so it's easy to say things like consultants and contracts to kind of put the blame and point the finger at someone. But but there's a much wider issue issue here that we're not resolving for at all. Okay. I think that's why slaunch care happened. Um, I think it must
0: be five or six years old at this mm. stage. Um, but, um, it, you know, it's often forgotten that it wasn't um, something that someone ran for election based on. It was based on repeated conversations like this over mm. a decade yeah. where it was like, right, where, OK, where was we need the, a solution. Where is we the need
1: redesign of the health system to come out of saunter care? Well, we seem has have happened, my argument point it. is it has to yeah. be implemented. Yeah. Yeah. Where,
0: and, and I think was it's was worth there saying, a
1: redesign in Solange Care of, yes. of, of how those yes, systems absolutely. all work. So what all we about, heard about was decentralisation in a row over this.
0: Um, I suppose dissolving the monolithic yeah. HSC mm-hmm. created by, I believe, the current or the previous Taoiseach, it's honest it to now, it was Michael Martin created the HSE. Um, and it was to deal with you know, cutting up that to, monolithic. To mass, go back to health boards. Back to nearly essentially health boards, where you would have community health organisations teaching hospitals. And that all has started to some extent mm. but then we have the Navan Hospital situation not, not familiar with Bantry but there is no point having A&Es and pods and buildings dropped in for the vote of an independent TD if you don't have the proper doctors yeah. and you need the throughput. So there's yeah. no point having Emily sitting down in Clonmel for want of a better place waiting for a trauma to come in. In order <laughs> to keep your skill up, you yeah. need to constantly see it. Yeah. OK, and, can I ask you and a And slantia care was done to try okay. and get rid yeah. of the NAV and hospital issues and now it's just politically toxic.
1: OK, so can I no ask you... about the I've leave OG as it were. A pra- practical question mm. on that then. And I'm not suggesting that you should be doing more. But is there more that pharmacists could do on a week like this? Is there more that pharmacists could, could do? Do you want to be I empowered? I don't want them out have gone home when <laughs>
2: yeah. I
0: leave here. Yeah. But yes, we are stretched. But there are elements that we could deal with. So my, my view would be patient group directives where someone comes in for something like perhaps thrush this morning. Why can't why would I be sending that woman to the GP? Yeah, no need first. And we did it mm. with the morning after pill. We're doing it with Viagra currently. Again, it would seem ridiculous that I would send a man before it became over the counter Viagra to a doctor for a prescription when the doctor's trying to deal with all the dying I, children and old I people. I gather
1: a child with, um, with conjunctivitis. conjunctivitis anywhere in Europe, you can get yeah. over the counter the treatment for that. But not in Ireland. Not in Ireland.
0: Um, there's loads of things like that
1: that we could deal could with. Could you give Minor all the, the odd antibiotic to people if they've had this? A lot of My people have recurring is, respiratory stuff again, and they take the same antibiotic.
0: I would think, you know, I'm nearly 20 years qualified, different if some of them working for me, two years qualified. But in terms of, you know, we need the dosing and the weight and all that's very important. But when you're experienced and you know what you're at, I cannot see why that wouldn't be the case, why... Jimmy has the same thing he had and there's self-tests now as well for RSV and flu and mm. all that. So there's elements of that could be done in yeah. the community. Yeah. And also, I believe community pharmacy kept a lot of people out of AE over Christmas by yeah. maximising availability to over-the-counter treatments. Yeah, Where, yeah. you know, you, you ramped up a treatment plan that you could buy over-the-counter. By the way, I, I'm record. being
1: told to say that I certainly am blaming all our problems on people getting older. I'm not. What I'm saying <laughs> is that and this is where it possibly is a bugbear of mine right now. What I'm saying is that it seems to me that if we had other mechanisms for looking after geriatric care. What in age the com- is geriatric in, in now, the, Brendan? In though. the community. As you get older, in what in do com- you think no, no, I, this is No, no, it's important <laughs> that I need to make this point, though, that I mean, yeah, in yeah. the community, if we were, if there were eyes on clinics, hands on, watching a lot of these people, there, it is no place for people in their 80s and 90s who are frail to end up sitting around yeah. for days in, 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 in an ED. It absolutely isn't. And you'd wonder if it is avoidable, Anthony, if there was a system in place. In it's, the it's subst-
4: it is substantially reducible. And you put your finger on it. You know, there, there is so much more that pharmacists do in other countries mm. that they could do here. Our pharmacists are superbly trained really well qualified. We don't make use of them. Our nurses are superbly trained, really well qualified. We don't make use of them. So everything's being funneled through my profession, through the doctors, including stuff that we're not necessarily very good at, that we're just kind of, you know, we sign the form because somebody has to sign the form. It would make a lot more sense to build these pathways of care. And Emily put her finger on that as well. You need pathways of care in hospital, but you need them outside hospital as well. So at the moment, for uh, I know someone who is in hospital right now. and The only reason they're in hospital right now occupying a bed is because the public health nurse can't raise that person's care package at home. Mm-hmm. It has to be done through the hospital, through an assessment in the, in the hospital, who will go back and tell the public health nurse, yes, we agree with what you just said two weeks ago, but in the meantime, that's a hospital bed being occupied, somebody being exposed to all the risks of being in
1: hospital. For no, no gain. Okay, and we do that all the time.
4: But
3: it's. I mean,
1: uh, one uh, second, uh, Alison. I want to bring Emily mm-hmm. back in. Emily, is any mm-hmm. anything helpful there?
2: Oh, I mean, there are lots of helpful ideas, um, and it's just. I'm thirty years um, a doctor. I'm right. over twenty of them, and I have worked all those periods of between Christmas, New Year. And I think I was at my most broken on the heading home at midnight on the 30th of December this year. And the same old, same old problems with um, lack of space, lack of staff and lack of agreed pathways. And uh, having seen the nurses I work with absolutely broken, Mm. having been worked with junior doctors on that shift that I know are going to be gone as far as away from emergency medicine as they can. And, uh, you know, I I just want us to even pause. And it's a bit like um, we're so busy trying to explain why it happened and find solutions. that for people like me, there needs to be a pause to acknowledge what happened. Okay. And how awful it was and how it didn't need to happen.
1: Was was New Year's um, Eve because, this year your lowest point because of the of the previous few years you had been through a culmination of all that? Um,
2: no, it it was a, it, a bit. No, I suppose it was very very difficult clinically. Um, we really um, and certain cases that we had to absolutely let down because we were so crowded, but but I think that it seemed to be. Just the same old, same old. There was nothing changed from all my previous years for working in, in that gap. There was the same old reasons things couldn't happen. Uh, the same old reasons we were down staff, um, and and you just begin. I, I think hopelessness sets in, um, and it's very hard then when people come and say, "Sure, it could have been worse," or "It was worse elsewhere," yeah. or <laughs> all these Irishisms we throw at. Bad events, and you know, I think back to all the industrial schools, to all the um, um, child sex abuse, or whatever. If we had ever just paused and said, "This is happening; it shouldn't be happening; it has to stop."
1: Okay, so maybe, maybe if there was a determination to have this conversation, not in the not in the teeth of the storm, maybe, Um, Alison. Yeah, yeah, sorry, just just one more. Yeah, go on, Emily. Sorry.
2: I I don't want to be part of this big HSE medical silence of, oh sure it's always like this at this time. The oh, sure, archer could be worse. All oh, the places worse. This is appalling, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be happening. And we ha- that should be our starting point, um, acknowledging okay. how awful it is and that patients mm-hmm. are being failed.
3: Okay. Yes, yeah, and I I think that hearing that is so important because there is, and we've we've kind of alluded to it. There's an element of white noise about this that we've been living with it so for so long, and yet there's no sense, to, to my mind, within the political system of there being any fresh momentum any sense that the shoulder is going to be really put to the wheel here where it would make differences. Sarah Burke had a really good piece in the Irish Times, an opinion piece yesterday, and she said that if Sláinte Care promises of universal primary care and elective hospitals, these is the building of new elective hospitals, were resourced and delivered in the first five years, it's five years since Sláinte Care was launched, there would already be many more routes into our health system. So therefore, you could say five wasted years. Mm. And I mean you No you, you I, look,
1: I, it looks as if there is now a sport being put on building uh, elective hospitals.
3: Yeah, there is, but I mean I look I've been watching it all for long enough. It's hard to it's it's very hard not to feel cynical. I mean we can't like look well, at that. headline. we tried to build a hospital no, and look, we all
1: saw what happened yeah, there. But yeah, look look at it. that
3: headline in the, in the in the mail on Sunday. One week of A and E trolley chaos kills fifty patients. Mm. I mean that's an extraordinary Brenda Power. Emily, has do you think it, Emily, just, do you think one, that's
1: I, just one sec. Yeah. Just on that, because I do think it's important to contextualise. That's it is quite alarming sounding. Mm. Emily, do mm. you think that could be right? Like, do you think there are people definitely dying at that one in seventy-two ratio because of delays?
2: Yes. Well, it's it's very good research. It's come out of a much bigger health system, the UK. It's absolutely part now of the, the scientific basis. On which the the you know the emergency medicine in the u k is fighting its corner, so yes i I think it is more likely than not to be true that okay. um for you know well the figures that I would be familiar with, that would be one in eighty two patients will die okay. once the waiting time in an e d gets beyond five hours um so yes um okay. it's, but it wouldn't it not might not be the hundred that are in e d at this moment. But if you were to do one of your massive public health studies, there is death happening. That when they take out all the other causes or all the other factors, that deaths are occurring because of weights and ED.
1: Okay, Emily O'Connor, consultant in emergency medicine. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thanks, God bless. Bye bye.
1: Um, OK, just before we go to the break, Alison, you wanted to talk about um, one. Yes, story. I just
3: wanted to, to. I mean, we don't know what happened. There's a Brenda Power is writing about a particular case this morning. We obviously don't know what's happened. Mm. Uh, and there is an happened. investigation, exactly. There's an going, investigation on. going on. But you would imagine that this is a classic case of something that could happen in an overcrowded A&E situation. Yeah. And this is in UHL in Limerick, which has long had. Uh, issues. Uh, I have friends who have uh, similar space to yourself, Brendan, myself, and, and friends, elderly parents down around that region in Limerick, who just dread the idea of, of ending up there. We saw Michael McGrath, the Minister for Finance, alluding on the radio on, I think it was on Friday, saying that how come some hospitals do better than others? I would imagine he added his sites Limerick, um, because for the last couple of years speaking to politicians privately, they will all mention Limerick. Um, but Brenda talks about the death of Eva Johnson, who died a teenager who died of bacterial meningitis. And I think, again, rather than us, you know, this is an actual case where tragedies happen. People are dying. She says, why is this beautiful child's death gone virtually unremarked? Why have we not taken to the streets to say enough is enough? The too many families have been bereaved. Enough tears shed. And it goes on. And I think that's just important to show that this is the actuality of uh, a case like this, the actuality of overcrowding.
1: Okay, we got a text from a pharmacist in the UK. So it turns out that we we checked, according to the NHS website, by 2026, the aim is for all newly registered pharmacists to be able to independently uh, prescribe medicine. Mm -hmm. Text here. uh, I'm a consultant. One, I'm a consultant in an acute hospital working today, the weekend. Okay, we all accept that loads of consultants working at the weekend. Two, this consultant says, EDs are different from words. Yes, a ward is unlikely to see a consultant at the weekend, but there's always a consultant in the ED. So I Mm. think that's possibly uh, close to the reality of it. Now, Sinead, um, I suppose this is kind of connected to everything we've been talking about. We know that one in... Four of our tax euros goes on the health service, but uh, you're looking at uh, the story in the Sunday Independent today. Philip Ryan saying that five billion tax surplus is going to pay down debt, uh, is according to the tarnished of Radker.
5: Yeah, so this is, I mean, front page of the Independent. Adjacent to what we've just spent forty minutes talking about is that we have been Ireland has been given a five a record five billion euro tax surplus mm. uh, that will be used to build up cash reserves and pay off the national debt. Um, well, quite frankly, I think this is a complete misuse of, of this money. So, you know, what, what, what this really points to for me is the complete lack of imagination and creativity when it comes to Ireland's economic and social strategy. Why? OK, so, so reading, is what
1: got us in the position we've been in so many times is that when we had it, we spent it. And then when times weren't so good. We, we, we hadn't anything saved and we have all this excess corporation tax coming in now that we know possibly will not be there in two years time. Should we not put a bit of it aside?
5: OK, Brendan, that's one way to look at it. But what about if I said to you, you know, we we spent how did we spend it? OK, so so what Ireland needs right now, what Ireland needed 10 years ago was critical infrastructure.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: We have no public transport. Well, you know, sorry, well, we, we we have, sorry, free, we, we have yeah, public transport. Extensive. Okay, let's look at let's look at the the infamous train from from the airport into Dublin. Now, if you were if you were a minister that was thinking about the next thirty years, you'd be thinking, why don't we have a train that goes from Dublin to London to Paris? We can't get a train to go from the airport into town, so we have five billion euros. A lot of
1: people are question if we need a train from the airport into town.
5: Well
1: Yeah, that's a side point. But okay. Would,
5: yeah. <laughs> um, so, so when we look at this five billion euros, you know, how do we want to spend it, and have we have we misspent money in the past? So, when okay. we think about spending this money today, there's two ways to think about it. One is kind of enveloped in this idea of the nanny state and what we're seeing on both sides from Sinn Féin and and the others in terms of polarization and and saying, you know, what we don't want to do is say here's every here's a tenner next month for every household to go into to electricity costs. Okay, we're going to patch up the, the the cracks in the wall. What we need to do is knock down a lot of walls in Ireland and rebuild them from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that's what the €5 billion Euros is for. So this kind of, you know, quote-unquote rainy day fund, well, it started raining already. And and the, the best time to build this infrastructure, critical and assets, critical infrastructure and assets that we need, was yesterday. And the next best time, and the next cheapest time to start building it is today, not in 10 years' time mm-hmm. when we're patching up
1: would you agree we seem to be not great at it if you look at the <laughs> children's hospital <laughs> well I'm not going to argue against that we're trying to move that. a maternity <laughs> hospital for but then, you know
0: the matter was built I think it's a 98 bed unit I read it on something yeah, this morning yeah. within two years based on yeah. the getting around the planning thing because of Covid or whatever and Limerick
1: yeah. is nearly yeah. up and you know, and Limerick, really has Limerick built one and is Limerick, is, to build Limerick has built is one right?
4: and yeah. is planning to build another and but that and that's great but it's only just keeping up with their, their needs.
0: And you still need consultants.
4: Yeah, because the, you know, the demographics is good news. There's more Irish people living to be older, mm-hmm. which is, you know, those of you who don't want to live to be older, <laughs> raise one hand. But we're not planning for that. We we are still the youngest population in the European Union by a good margin. We are nowhere near, say, where Sweden is and has been for 20 years and the Swedes don't seem to be coping very nicely with an older population. But that's because they thought about it and they planned it. There's a piece here about in the Daily Mail or the Irish Sunday Mail from John Drennan about you wouldn't run a fruit and veg shop like this. It's chaos because they don't know if you're running a fruit and veg shop, you know roughly how many cauliflowers, oranges, cabbages you have. If you're running the health service, you don't. We, we actually have better Well, you can't, you
1: can't know how many uh, no, how we, many people are going to come in don't at any know. time. You can well, make actually, an, an educated you guess. Can. You, can. You, can, can, yeah. a, you can
4: do much better than an educated guess. But we don't even know how many we have there now. We don't know how many GPs we have. What do you mean? I mean, we literally don't know how many GPs we have. Really? There are four or five But they're not
1: registered, like, is there not a master list somewhere? I know, I know it's, no, it's no. not on a computer, this being no. the health it's service. There are, handwritten. There, are four,
4: there are four or five different sets of lists of GPs and they are not the same and they do not have the same number of people on them. And that's just one tiny example. We don't know what's happening on a day-to-day basis with waiting times and EDs. We don't know what's happening with people picking up prescriptions. We know what's being prescribed. We don't know what's being collected. We we have a whole range of deficits in basic, 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 basic stuff. We, we believe, we, we don't know, we believe that there's a, a something of the order of 3 billion euros in small item capital equipment deficit in HSE. Actually, we don't know. We should know. That, that's what a chief, the HSE has a chief financial officer for. But we don't know. Is the
1: HSE getting away lightly <coughs> here, in your opinion?
4: The HSE are caught between two stools because the Department of Health insists on engaging in the weeds of operations. They do it all the time. But they won't take responsibility for operations. So when HSE wants to do something, every decision loop goes up through the department, which is, is, is wrong. You know, if if you had to if your producer had to run everything through the cabinet every decision about your show
1: through the camera. Not a million miles away from that. I'm, jo- I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> you
4: know, how long would it take to, do it, to get anything done? But actually HSE does. A lot of decisions in HSE go up to very inappropriate levels within the department. So it's, okay. it, it is a really, I mean, there's a, a paper, an article here from Michael O'Farrell. He's saying who is in charge and there's tape recordings from inside the Department of Health where everyone says, well, acute care is not my problem. Chronic disease management is not my problem.
1: And they've got marked down no ownership or something yeah. on it. They, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. It's appalling. But doesn't that,
3: yeah. but doesn't it's that, that is everything we have been talking about? And doesn't yeah. that suit yes. everyone in a way? Except they, the, the poor the parcel, patients. Yeah. Except the patients. The parcels keep getting passed yeah. around. What Anthony has just talked about there about the lack of measurement, that you wouldn't get it in a fruit and veg shop. Uh, again doesn't that in a way suit because you don't then have actual accountability mm. to say here's the situation and who is responsible for that.
5: And I think it all goes back to a complete lack of ambition to do it. Mm. To do not but not just healthcare but climate like you know energy infrastructure we, why, why are we why are there more cars on the road today than 10 years ago? That's, that's, that's the 5 billion euros right there. Like why is, you know, the rainy day, like this is the rainy day. We're here. In
0: terms of missed opportunities, when COVID happened three years ago, things changed radically Mm -hmm. in about three weeks. That's true. We went to electronic prescribing, like literally going from the bit of paper being handed in and having people to sign things to no paper. And we all adapted, you know, grand, you know, straight away. We all got over it. The system works, I think. I haven't seen any major problem with it. There's been a few little things that have gone wrong with it. But it was possible when it was required. Yes.
1: And, Never waste a good and, crisis. And, and all then, that. and yeah. and
0: I believe COVID as a crisis was wasted mm. because there was your time to basically get everything done. Now, obviously, the matter didn't with their unit waste waste their opportunity, but there was plenty of space there. And like that, we did expand our roles, mm. kind of naturally. We're sort of protected by mm. legislation that came in extending prescriptions and all of that. So we did manage it. Yeah. But then it just stopped. And now we are yet again. And if I hear about another perfect storm, it seems to be all of these perfect storms emerging. There's no such thing as a good storm. Alison,
1: there was a a perfect um, shite storm uh, as well this week. Um, (laughs) Just to move us on there. Uh, You looked at Lucinda Creighton's piece in the Business Post. Uh, This is about this... um, attack on Kieran Cannon and Ann Rabbit at a meeting in Gork last week. Boorish attack on politicians debase and threaten our democratic system.
3: Yeah, and I I mean, I look, Brendan, I honestly thought this was really shocking. I mean, Mm. what a thing to happen Mm. and uh, why, I mean, I often think this, why would you be a politician? And it's not. I mean, particularly Anne Rabbit has spoken a number of times of various incidents that have happened to her where she's felt threatened and been threatened and where she and her family actually had to move out of their house for for a couple of days on on the advice of of Gardaí. Um, And I think that it's it's Kieran Cannon addressed this as well in an interview in the News at One during the week. How are you going to attract people to politics if... uh, if this is what people see, that what what happens to to politicians. And that's the point that Lucinda raises as well, that she's saying good people will no longer see it as a viable career. She's saying if you don't like your politicians, if you don't like what they're doing, elections are the best form of rebuke. You do it at at the ballot box. Now, another angle on this. You see
1: the pipeline a a bit more so than the rest of us, maybe you're kind of, you know, adjacent to the system and everything. Are there good young people coming up in your opinion? No,
3: I mean, you'll, you'll hear it from the people in parties who are responsible for recruiting people that there can be. I mean, no more than if you if you had a young person asking, you, should I go for a career in medicine? Mm. <laughs> um, should I go for a career in politics? You wouldn't be rushing them into it. And there's an added layer of that then in terms of, and Kate would talk better to this, mm. females, because they mm. do attract far more um, opprobrium and threats and all of that on social media. We saw the horrendous time that Jennifer Jennifer Carl McNeil McNeil mm. uh, went through in her court case but an added layer on this is that before Christmas when we had the reshuffle when Leo veradker was being voted on for Taoiseach Matty McGrath the independent TD stood up and to the amusement and kind of shock of a number of his colleagues talked about powerful globalist forces and how they were having a huge impact on how the country was being run and he went into this the sort of thing about the great reset yeah. and the head not of the a world to you, not no. at all and i mean it was utterly Bizarre, right? And I wrote wrote a, b- a column about this in the Examiner, and subsequently, I'm not saying it was in the back of what I wrote. Micheal Martin uh, addressed this in an interview he did in the Irish Times, where he said he was that people were really taken aback that uh, somebody is supplying the Rural Independent Group. You know that it's the far right seeking to plant their ideas. Now, okay, let's now look, we we're not going to, to make any away. connection no, between Matty McGrath and, and the far right. No, okay, and we're not going to we're not going to get carried away with this. You're not saying that it's. You, 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 directly connected to any attack on the far right. But yeah. if you talk about it's the immigration issue, anti-vax, let's not be naive though. Let's keep an eye on it. This mm. was an utterly bizarre uh, episode in the doll, and it's certainly well worth it. Yeah,
1: and life. again, we make no connection between what happened in Gort and any kind of. Uh, f- no, but I do wonder how many parsnips
3: are like buttered in Tipperary, Matty's constituency, Kate, on the words of, of Klaus Schwab. Eva Moore has
0: another Kate. great article on it um, in the Sunday Times today, and I just. She, she, they are public servants, not public property, and I think mm. it's a great line mm. from mm. her. Yeah. And my fear is, is that. That this will polarise politics. So you'll either go into politics if you have absolutely nothing to lose, as in mm. you don't care, or you're so wealthy you can legal yourself out of it, is another way. Okay. And mm. you will have a polarised setup. Now, my children, when I was a TD, was ver- were very small and they kind of didn't really have a clue what was going on. But I do know of TDs and senators who had children in secondary school. When I was a, a TD, and what some of those children went through in terms of commentary by teachers, in some cases commentary mm. by people at at school gates. I myself had a poster in someone's garden about me. Didn't mention me. Everyone knew who it, was. it was 18 months up in my area, mm. and in that time, one of my children started reading. It was grand but they didn't know what it was. So all of these things would make you go, why would I do that to my family? Why would I bring this upon my husband? And actually, in my case, I guess my own fault, but my staff got, because there's no line. So Mm. when people were annoyed Mm. at me, they came in and attacked the pharmacy staff. So would
1: you go back into um, actual professional politics? (laughs) My husband's at the zoo, so he won't be listening.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, look, it, 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 it is complicated and you have to be resilient. But something, there has to be a zero tolerance approach. During the Eighth Amendment and not to get into that, every room myself and Simon Harris went into, Mm. we worked out how we were getting out of it. Mm. And be that a window or a fire exit, we never went into a room that we didn't know the exit. When Anne Rabbit got hit with a bag, she knows that could have been an arrow or as something else. Mm -hmm. People are that crazy out there. It's happened in the UK twice. And... Again, you're often labelled as moaning or not tough enough or not able. I was going into the Swan Centre one one weekend with three of my own and two belonged to somebody else. The cinema, and I was surrounded, but and I was like a mother hen with the cardigan around the kids. And I said, I deal with you when I come out. I just have to deal with them, and like that was minor. But that's <laughs> happening all over the place. It happens in churchyards. It happens in schoolyards. And I really think zero tolerance. If you mm. attack somebody in public mm. life, end up... So would you go, back? Would you go you... back
1: into professional frontline
0: politics? Well, we'll see. I'm very busy at the minute and we'll see how things go. But you okay. don't lose your drive for it or your mm. desire for mm. it. And I don't think anyone that goes in... I don't know... There's very few people who go into politics for the wrong reasons. Most people want to change the country for the better and do the right thing. But it is a major decision mm. to have to make. But it is, I can, it would be very difficult for me to recommend for somebody to go into politics who had a young family, mm. unless they had a good system at home that they could mind their teenagers. And then there's the online awful stuff, awfulness yeah, as Shred. well.
5: Quick counterpoint to that is, you know, as, as we were quoted um, before, I think, um, Canon saying, you know, if, if this is what's happening to politicians, it's, I mean, look, it's not, it is what happened to one politician is it wrong absolutely does it happen every day no i mean you know is this going to is this one incident going to prevent a generation of people going into politics i I would be shocked. It's not if, one of No,
3: it Yeah. Oh okay. No, yeah. a series of them, and I think people yeah. people involved and as Kate just has, will tell you, the culture has really changed. And one of the most incredible things to me is that that man came back into that meeting, <laughs> and that <laughs> nobody said you out. He went. And when down, it was in, Joel Duffy, yeah, I, have, I was in Duffy, I had a Okay. Okay. Well,
1: yeah. Let's not <coughs> get get into the, the details of, of him. Um, really briefly. Sinead, there was something you wanted to talk about and just to end on on a lighter note, fake wine in the in the sunday times peter conradi is writing about it
5: okay love this article i don't know if this if this shows that it's a slow news week or or if if uh, if, if this paper is just trying to keep us all afloat in january uh, yes peter conradi is writing about is that a frodo which i thought was a great title uh, basically uh, fake forged wine okay mm. um, this is of interest to me personally because i'm looking at art at the minute i'm looking at forged art in fact very few people know that sometimes forgeries are worth much more than the originals. Uh, I spoke earlier this week with Sotheby Auctions and uh, the Auction House's uh, chief whiskey expert who had spotted uh, a very bad fraud, he said. Uh, in the whiskey auction market this week and and the interesting thing about uh, wine and whiskey is that very few not even the sommeliers can yeah, tell go on. it's fake, yeah, yeah but it's the packaging that gets them every time and and mm. like art uh, and and you know 3 weeks ago there was a or in uh, late November there was a Christie's auction of of an mm. of a dinosaur skull uh, as a piece of art that was called off because expert a paleontologist last minute had said look this is not the real deal. The thing so, is, I think a
1: lot of people would think that uh, whatever rich guy ended up with our rich guy or gal ended up with that fake wine. Sure, if they didn't know <laughs> the, the difference, God, the God, well, this, this God bless you them. Question, how okay. do we I'm thinking
3: the you'd be much more inclined uh, okay, to spot a fake wine in January than you're putting. <laughs> <million>
1: <December. laughs> okay, Alison yeah, O'Connor, point. Anthony Staines, Kate O'Connell, and Sinead O'Sullivan. Thank you all very much for that very lively hour. We sorted it all out.